Fear the Walking Dead, the podcast, an unofficial discussion of the news and events surrounding Fear the Walking Dead with Quinn Warner, Stephen Payne, and Bruce McGee. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Are you guys there? Mm-hmm. Right well, Quinn, here. start us off. When? Do I just do it now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Quinn Warner. I'm Steve Payne. I'm Bruce McGee, and this is the Walking Fear the Walking Dead <laughs> podcast. And uh, we have just finished our mid-season finale. What did you guys think of it? It was really good. Like, this most recent episode and then the last episode, they were both really, they excused my expectations. I really, I think of the... They were wild. That was my remark to Bruce. They were wild episodes. I think of the last two seasons, the last episode, not this one, but the one before it was my favorite because it went so deep personally. This one... There's a lot more action involved in much what yeah. this civilization collapse around our ears. Right. Um, you know, this seems it, to be a pattern too, where they're they're going to be alternating character development with action, and sometimes hybridizing the two in a single episode. You know, right? Yeah. Last week there was some of both. This week it was almost entire. Oh, well, there was some character development too. I mean, you uh, had. Um, uh, Daniel Salazar kind of losing it. <laughs> yeah, kind of is an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just go on a limb and say losing it, right? He lost it. <laughs> he was having a Joan of Arc moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe a Kylie moment. He may emerge from the flames that he started. Uh, yeah. Um, do you know what, uh, Game of Thrones? Yeah. Mm-mm. No, I don't. I've never seen it. You do, Quinn? I do. <laughs> oh, yes. Did you see it a couple of weeks ago when Kyle Lacey burned all the cows and yes. came walking out of the burning thing and, you know, she stood in front of all the people. And so maybe that'll be Reuben. Maybe that's who I want to hook up down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a phoenix sort of an image then. She really is. Um, she is, definitely. Yeah, she's one of the strongest women characters you're going to see on TV. Um, oh, I must say, Madison could give her a run. <laughs> Madison, yeah. You know, stepping up and not necessarily in a good way. What did y'all think of her killing or blocking Celia in with the walkers? We don't know that they killed her. That was a pretty, uh, a pretty ballsy move on Madison's part. Like when she was, uh, when she was talking to Celia first, and she's like, she's putting on this like sob story. I was like, oh. I want to understand, you know, I want to learn. And so Sylvia trusts her. <laughs> she probably should not have trusted her. And it's kind of mirroring what happens with her son earlier, where he kills the pirate, you know. Mm-hmm. It's her version of killing the pirate, except she's, I mean, left the left the woman to certain doom, sitting there amidst all the walking dead. Well, and it was cold-blooded. It wasn't yeah. that she was fighting for her life. It's one thing that morally to kill somebody in self-defense when they're trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of a backstabby sort of move. Literally behind her back, I'm going to 
slip out and lock her in here. And I, you know, I wonder if, um, you know, the metaphor for this week is uh, we have met the enemy and they is us. You know, like mm-hmm. Pogo. Pogo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a comic strip back in the dark ages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was a pretty ingenious strip because they took on it wasn't just humor. I mean, they, it was a lot of political satire and social satire. I mean, it was full of that. It was the Doomsbury of its era. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, we have become the monsters. I mean, the two people who were arguably the villains of the episode are are both people on our side. You know, one of them kills Cillian, the other one burns burns down the, uh, the compound, you know, the one place where they found something of a respite. You know, they, yeah. they seem to be maintaining an order against uh, the um, against the walkers, and now it's gone. You know, mm-hmm. All that is wiped out in two hours, two episodes, by hour. Heroes, so uh, they don't—they're not afraid of moral ambiguity. Well, I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean, don't you think? And this has almost gotten to be a cliche in a lot of postmodernist fiction. But I mean, don't you think that's really redefining what it means to be heroic or anti-heroic or anything? I mean, it's just—I I would argue that there's really no such thing as a hero, uh, personally. I mean, it's just, it's just a lot of very ordinary people caught up in some really strange and horrific situations. Mm. Well, only in the sense that maybe we should call them the protagonists. Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah well, the protagonists and antagonists. In the struggle, but they're not necessarily heroic in the classic John Wayne sense. John no. Wayne would have never done that. Right. In fact, late in his career, he had a, you know, he he had an acting part where the director wanted him to, uh, his guy who was fighting against was trying to get away by running up the bank of the the creek and uh, the director wanted John Wayne to shoot the guy in the back as he ran away and he said John Wayne doesn't shoot people in the back <laughs> it's just that's not the persona he had built over 50 years right that was uh, that went against his code or his character's yeah. code yeah, there was yeah. a heroic code that he actually believed in you know that this is the kind of hero I play um, and I'm not going to play any other kind and um uh, you know, that's not the kind of heroes we get in the zombie apocalypse. It's kind of, it's sort of prefigured by those Clint Eastwood spaghetti, I mean, all those spaghetti westerns yeah. out of the 60s and 70s. I mean, they're, those are very similar characters. They're, again, there are no heroes and uh, there are no villains either, really. I mean, again, it's just a bunch of ordinary people who are struggling in, in the midst of these really terrible circumstances. Well, yeah, Eastwood's westerns kind of embodied that kind of new ethos that John mm-hmm. Wayne was not going to go there. Well, Clint's hungry. He's he's a young, struggling actor. What, what, who do you want me to shoot and where? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think this series kind of captures a very similar kind of a spirit in that, in that sense. And the irony is that she, that Madison especially with the, because, you know, Ruben Blattis, um, uh Daniel, he has the defense that he was mentally impaired. Uh, Madison yeah. is in full control of herself. She's doing this because she thinks it's going to bring Nick back to her, but it actually completes the breach. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Get in the truck. No, I won't get in the truck. Um, 
I, I think if anybody won the episode, it was definitely Nick. Uh, yeah. As far as, um, you know, this, um, I mean, because he's so, I mean, uh, playing like three-dimensional chess in the zombie apocalypse, it's really hard to do. Like, he wanted to make a place for his family, a refuge. Mm-hmm. And the person that could make that happen was Celia. Well, what does Celia want? She wants her son back. And yeah. so he actually, you know, puts on his zombie cambo and goes out and finds the guy, <laughs> wrestles with him, ties him up, uh, yeah. you know, puts a gag on him and brings him back, you know. And uh, he comes back like he's walking a dog, you know. Uh, <laughs> I thought about you, Quinn. This is sort of like Nick Fest this week. It was. I read it. <laughs> it was hey, a regular team, Nick Fest. Uh, after this, I'm Team Nick, too. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, he, um, he really you know, showed how resourceful he is. But then all of his careful work that he had done fell into ash, you know, between the actions of his mom and the actions of uh, Salazar. Um the place he was making for them, basically. You know, and I still think Madison didn't really see him for who he is. You know, she sees him as this weak, mm-hmm. uh, drug addict, addled kid. And he's the one that was making spot for them. You know, uh, he was the one saying, okay, here's this safe place for, for my family. And mm-hmm. uh, she they kind of ruined that. So there's nothing left there for him. I'm going to walk among the zombies. Yeah. I think that um, this entire zombie apocalypse has been kind of like Nick's like coming of age almost. Like, it really has, yeah. Like he was already like, you know, a young adult when everything started. But mm. before the apocalypse, he, he he was still into drugs. He was still... Like, comparatively, he was still, like, really immature. But now that this whole apocalypse has happened, he's kind of become an adult. And even in the real world, where we don't have the apocalypse going on, uh, when a parent's child kind of comes of age and starts becoming more of an adult than a child, it's still hard for them to see them for who they are and who they've become. They always see them as that child that that they raised. So... And, um... It's a buildings roman. This is a buildings roman of sorts, except it's not a novel, but it's still it's got the you know the same characteristics. When you get into drugs, you kind of freeze your emotional development wherever you know you stop developing emotionally because you're getting high all the time. So mm-hmm. whenever you come out of the drugs, you have to go back to growing up again. And he's he really has you know he was kind of frozen in wherever fourteen, fifteen year old. Um, emotional space and the way that he related to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, all of a sudden, he's 21. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he's grown up quick and Madison just cannot keep up. Mm-hmm. I think Celia and Strand see him for who he is now. Yeah. That's why he feels close to them. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I want to go back to Salazar because I really, I'm, I, like as I've said before, I mean I'm a real fan of Ruben Blades's acting. I mean I think he's a first-rate actor. What did y'all think about that sort of dream sequence or whatever that whatever you want to 
call it that he underwent or that kind of hallucinatory experience. I mean, as far as how it affects uh, him and how yeah how it kind of gives insight on his character. The one where he was leading uh, Ophelia out and she started like peeling her face off. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was that was awesome. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, I don't know. It just we we saw him kind of making his descent uh, in the last episode. Like he's he's slowly and slowly been uh, been kind of like degenerating. But I think yeah, like a few episodes ago, right at the end, he heard a voice. And yeah, you knew that wasn't good. Because uh, they aren't going to just leave it. But you're right; it's been building up, and this time it really accelerated. And yeah, and the in the last episode, he was having all of those flashbacks and everything, and you saw him uh, at that one scene where Ophelia comes in to bring him uh, into the dining room for dinner or whatever. He's just sitting there, and he's really detached. And Ophelia ends up praying for him to her mother, so he's. He's been like on the downward spiral for for a month <laughs> at least. Yeah, I, and I, I people thought it was been... really cool how they've like portrayed his final like the final like string snapping disintegration or whatever it's. Mm-hmm. And now for the next half of the season, the question will be: A, did he survive? And I think in the after show, The Talking Dead, mm-hmm. that the people that know gave strong hints that he'll be back. Uh, um, His contract was renewed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. If you don't see him die, they may not be dead. You know, he was standing over a little pool of fire, but he could have gotten out. Um, yeah. And so I'm assuming he does. But then the other question will be, can he reclaim his sanity? Like, yeah. did this have a catharsis for him? Did he really kind of burn his past away? Can he now move well, those, on? Those are, you know, we, I looked at those kinds of experiences in, in one of the one of my graduate classes because it came up in a, the, the writings of a certain, you know, literary artist. And those are, they, they're under the heading of, as crazy as it sounds, but they're kind of under the heading of visionary experiences of a sort. So that's I'm, I'm I'm thinking there may be some revelation he may have gotten from you know that series of experiences, particularly when he was when he was tied up in the chair, you know, and he's yeah. he's he escapes and he sees seeing his dead wife and all this, and actually not just seeing her but conversing with her, which is yeah. <laughs> surreal. I mean, that was just absolutely surreal. Well, and um, Celia talked to him too. You know, she was trying to give him a way out. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like her way out, <laughs> but you know he was having to grapple with it, which is something to the degree that he had done it at all over the last twenty years or so. It had been or thirty, I guess now. It had been with his wife, who's dead now, and he's no longer there to help him. But once he sees her, she kind of is there. <laughs> I liked that he was. Uh, he ended up being like high up in a chair though because that was kind of a a throwback to uh, everything he had probably done to other people you know tied them up in a chair and tortured them right this time he wasn't tortured except for like his own mental status torturing him but I thought it was a little bit uh, a little bit funny I laughed yeah (laughs) it's a circle kind of thing and Mm -hmm. 
um, it's ironic that the thing that at the beginning of the show last season made him in some ways the most ready for this mm-hmm. has actually become his undoing, and that's his experience with the Death Squad. You know, right. because he had these skills, but he also had the emotional, psychological damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, post-traumatic stress or something like it yeah. that he's been suffering. And, and, and suffering for years, because apparently you do suffer that for years thereafter. I mean, it's it's a, something that stays with you. Well, like Nick, he's been frozen. You know, like mm-hmm. he never worked beyond it, and so he's frozen in it. And now with this new circumstance, he has to confront it because everything is reminding him of mm-hmm. the bad old days. It's ironic because we were introduced to this character at the beginning of uh, of the series, and we're like, oh man, this like disheartened like war criminal who's going to be so awesome and there's all the apocalypse, he's going to be so ready. So he's one of the first ones in the main like core group of people to fall. Yeah, really interesting. It is. And, yeah, know, the the past is not is not always a predictor of the future. I think that's kind of part of the point they're making about some of those characters, mm-hmm. about their nature, about what comes out in them, but also about, frankly, whether or not they're going to survive. Right. We see it with Salazar, with you think he's going to last a really long time, but he's one of the first ones to to lose it. And then we also see it with Nick. He's the, the addict that nobody's really taking care of and everybody thinks he's going to fail, but it, he's probably gotten the most potential out of any of the other characters. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at him those first three or four episodes, and basically he's detoxing, and then he's finding drugs in the neighbor's houses, and he's not <laughs> detoxing anymore. He's hanging out of the pool, and um, he seems so fragile. Like, um, once you separate him from his drugs, they just fall apart, but then he actually starts to... Develop. Yeah. Now, how did y'all react to this this statement? Um, I think this was the the what's her name? I, her, her name always escapes me. The the mother of Tomas. Uh, Ophelia. She says, "This is not apocalypse. This is the beginning of the end of death itself. It is life eternal." Ha! Huh. Did yeah. she tell that to Daniel? She said that to Madison. Madison. Well, they were having one of their exchanges, yeah. yeah. And and it's. Well, and I uh, guess that's why she really didn't care if she was locked in with the Walkers, because you know, I'm not really going to die. I'll be here with my son. Mm-hmm. And even makes... the burning won't kill them. We've had burned zombies before. They just kind of smolder and keep shuffling along. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Does, so does, so fire does not stop them, in other words? Not unless you burn them up. Like and that's what happens. Them, you have to do a pretty good job. It would be like cremation level yeah. burning to actually kill A few thousand them. degrees. <laughs> for, for, for a pretty good bit of time, you know. And, and that's what happened. Uh, Salazar set fire to the place, and I was thinking, you know, good job. You know, you... He took care of all the zombies in the cage, but no, he didn't. He just left the thing open, and all of the zombies on fire start shuffling out, and they're about to like, rip everybody's faces off, and they're like, oh, crap, we got to get in the truck right now. Yes. <laughs> it's burning zombie time. We've got that's, to go. That's 
the only thing like worse than zombies. Like the only thing worse than a zombie is like a zombie on fire. <laughs> zombie, zombie Q. Because <laughs> they spread the fire as they go along, you know. It's a double yeah. danger. <laughs> this sounds like a word. <laughs> zombies are already bad. <laughs> you know, though, that might bring up something if, if, you know, when we once find out, if they ever do find out what the agent is that has caused the zombie apocalypse, mm. then could fire eliminate that that agent, you know, a virus or bacterial agent, whatever it is? You know, could it, it be fire? It has to be a really serious fire, not just a little wimpy, you know, yeah. Yeah. house fire. Uh, anything that would leave a body... Mm-hmm. That body can still move around and bite you. It has to burn up the body. Um, I want to talk about or discuss um the name of the episode this time. I know we discussed it last time with uh yeah. What was, what was the name this time? The name of the episode was Shiva, and I wanted to discuss with you guys whether you thought it was a reference to the god Shiva or maybe. I was the only two Shivas that I know of are the god Shiva, like in Hinduism, and also the practice of Shiva in Judaism, which is a um, it's a week long mourning period of like first degree relatives, like yes. your dad or your son or something like that or your sister. And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. It seems to be both. Yeah, it may have a double meaning. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the most famous thing people know about Shiva, the Hindu god, is, is um, when they blew up the first atomic bomb in that test, uh, Robert Oppenheimer said, right. I am death, the destroyer of worlds. Right. Um, and that's the quote everybody that knows anything about. You know, if you know nothing else about the Shiva, you know that. Um, and so... Um, you know, this isn't life eternal. This is death, the destroyer of worlds. But also a critical subplot of this was mourning the loss of Strand. And, um... Or Thomas. Not Strand, uh, yeah, Thomas. Um, You see his loyalty to Thomas in that he's going out there and digging this grave for him. People are telling him, you don't need to bury him. And, oh, I'm going to bury him. Damn it. <laughs> um, well, and I like the way they portrayed that that funeral. Uh, it was very much, from what I know, and I don't know a lot, but I mean, from what I know a little bit about Latino culture, I mean, it was it wasn't keeping it was keeping in line with the idea that death is an ever present reality in, in Latino cultures. It's very it's very unlike the Anglo culture, frankly, in that respect. Yeah. You know, uh, it is something that people do acknowledge with that. With that holiday, that holy day, uh, Day of the Dead. But apparently there's a difference between Mexico and uh, El Salvador, at least between Celia and um, Salazar, because he doesn't believe her her stuff. But, Quinn, what did did you think about those um, two types of Shiva? What what did you think, you know, what he thought of the question, what was your kind of uh, response? I, I agree with you. I think that it probably, I mean, I would say probably at the core, like, when peop- when whoever was, like, naming these episodes, they were probably mainly thinking of Shiva, like, the god Shiva. But I think that um, 
I think that the actual like the practice of Shiva is uh is kind of like a subplot because you're mourning like several people. Like Strand is mourning the loss of like his partner who's more or less like his spouse and like the only thing that he cared about. Right. And at the same time, like Madison is mourning for her son who is not dead but she's she feels like she's losing him. And yeah, she's she's, she's missing Travis. She's, she's missing the addict. You know that's <laughs> right. Do some drugs. Uh, so anyway, sorry. Go on. <laughs> and uh, Travis is mourning for uh, for Chris too. Like he doesn't know where he yeah. is. There's there's a lot of mourning going on, and I think that uh, there are a lot of kind of like. Uh, Similarities. If you think about like the act of Shiva and the things in the episode, like uh, during Shiva, you're not allowed to um, to bathe, really, not for like for pleasure or anything. Like you, it's only if it's like 100% necessary, and then you're like you're only really allowed to do it like with like cold water and in like like specific spots, not like just body. The so I thought that the scene uh, with Nick showering and <laughs> it's the first time we see someone bathe in this show and the only reason he's bathing is because he's just covered himself in zombie guts right. <laughs> to get it off. He's got his zombie camo on. Um, <laughs> and that's another thing Nick did that we didn't mention. He went out and found both um, Chris and his dad like he said yeah. he would but then he pretended he hadn't so the Madison would go on. Because really, we're at that point with Chris. We talked about it last week. Like, um, you know, with Lizzie in the, the original Walking Dead series, when she became homicidal, they had to kill her because they had the baby to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this one, he's willing to walk away from all of his other obligations to spend full time on Chris to try to bring yeah. him back. Which could happen. He could come back. Yeah. It's possible, but I I think Chris's character development has taken an interesting turn. When I when I was first introduced to these characters, I didn't think anybody would go that route. But it's uh it's really interesting and Travis to be the one to like give up everything else and to like stay around for his son is something uh, really interesting. And it might even, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't really want to speak out about this because I'm not a part of this culture and I don't know anything ignorant, but I wonder if it kind of ties into Maori culture and beliefs, you know, rather than going back to these people who, yeah, they're your family, but not blood, like, I wonder if it's more important to him to like stay with his son. Who? Oh yeah. There may be something to that because I, I wrote that down. Um, that was a powerful scene where they fought, and then you went through that, and then the aftermath of the fight. And he says, "I should have helped you," and I'd be willing to bet. And I don't. I'm like you. I don't know that much about Maori culture, but given that it would be considered a traditional culture like a lot of the Latino cultures would be, then mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet you that that family unit is to be preserved at all costs. In other words, it's sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. And if that's well, the case, then, then yeah, he's, he really is feeling 
he's feeling a, a form of guilt, and he probably, I, I would argue, too, that a lot of them probably feel survivor's guilt, you know, that phenomenon that you see with people who have somehow survived some sort of cataclysm, and the other people have been killed, and then they start asking, why me? You know, why did I survive, and why did they die? Yeah, I, I could argue that Travis is probably feeling something similar to, like, you know, after if his mom died, it's kind of like, well, this person was the one that was taking care of Chris the most. And if she were here, Chris would be doing a lot better than he is now. So so why didn't I die instead? Like, why didn't I have to Right. And, you know, she was actually more, like, necessary for the group because she had, she was a nurse and therefore could help yeah. when they needed uh, medical attention. Um, you know, Protecting them during the zombie apocalypse would make everything too easy. <laughs> right. Yeah, everybody's having to learn to. Uh, I gotta take this bullet out. I, uh, <laughs> I went skinned a squirrel back at the camp, and so I'm the you know it's like <laughs> working way down the barrel. Um, so, it's and the, also, the, uh, the ultimate DIY experience. <laughs> the apocalypse is. And if you look at his relationship with Madison, it's been kind of rocky. Yeah. Ever since the uh, the disintegration of society started, um, you know, basically neither one is going to necessarily give in to the other. Mm-hmm. So it was easier for him to walk away from her, given the current status of their relationship. I guess it'll be interesting to see in the coming weeks what happens with uh, Travis and Chris. You know, do they do they get reunited with the rest of their little core group, or do they go off on their own? I mean, what's what's going to happen? I mean, that's a yeah. We're we're now in three parts. We've got um, Ruben, uh, Bilotis, um Daniel Salazar is on his own. Uh, then you've got Ophelia, Madison. And um, Alicia. Alicia, they're together. And then. Nick is on his own. Yeah, Nick. No, Nick, you're right. We've got four groups, mm-hmm. uh, or four, four, four subplots to follow. Right. Um, because then you've got Chris and his dad. So uh, mm-hmm. that's for either individuals or smaller groups. And and it gets kind of complicated the way they do it is. Um, you don't see somebody for two or three episodes, and then they'll go back and have an episode about them mm-hmm. um, until they all finally come back, hopefully, together. Well, that brings up a good point, too, if they're separated. The degree to which they're separated means they're that much more vulnerable, right, to the, to the zombies oh, yeah. or, or to marauding bands of other survivors who are mm. who are more ruthless, frankly. From what Absolutely. y'all said, I mean, you've always got these other, I mean, because these characters seem to be trying to preserve something of what, I mean, this whole thing partly is about what it means to be human and how much of your humanity you preserve in a cataclysm like this. So it would be interesting to see what happens when these characters run up on people that aren't as concerned about preserving their humanity, much less anybody else's. Well, and at the very least, we know Madison is willing to kill in cold blood. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody... Pistol packing mama. That's what they used yeah. to call that, you know? I, I mean, we think of Strand as being ruthless, but I don't think he's actually 
responsible for any deaths yet, unless I'm missing. If you remember um, the interactions between Strand and, like, dangerous situations, Strand is always the first one to, like, run away. <laughs> like, that one time that, uh, well, I don't even remember what happened. I don't remember if it was, like, people coming on the boat or if it was, like, but uh, the core group was, like, oh, man, what do we do? Like, stuff happened. And Strand immediately, like, runs upstairs and, like, hides. And you don't see him again oh, yeah. until things are done. Well, he goes for the gun, and then it's not there. So he hops on a boat and gets away. And yeah. Totally. But the other thing he does is he cuts the cord with that boat. Right. He took that blade yeah. and slashed right through it, yeah. But, again, that's more of a passive-aggressive. He doesn't actually kill them. Yeah. Um, and so... um. You know, him actually causing somebody, especially in cold blood, you know, Madison just, you know, it's like that woman was talking her into it. You've got to be willing to do anything for your children. Yeah. Madison said, you're right, Clark. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a powerful yeah. sequence, the Madison and Celia sequence. It was very, very mm-hmm. powerful. But, I, you know, I'm kind of... I don't know. At that point, a little bit team silly, I'm afraid. Um, I think Madison has gone beyond what she should have done. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. That may, uh, Maybe you have to be ruthless. Maybe. We've seen Carol do some stuff like that <laughs> uh, in the other series. Like um, there was this... Um, kind of zombie flu. Um, if the zombies had red bloody eyes and they died of this flu and they were still contagious, mm-hmm. people in the prison started getting these when they were camped out there. Mm-hmm. So she actually killed and burned the bodies of the first two people that had the flu in hopes of stopping the spread of the disease. But So did that spread the zombie disease as well or just the flu? No, just the flu, but it would kill you, and then you would become a zombie, and a mm-hmm. contagious zombie. So it's kind of like a flaming zombie, you know. It's a <laughs> zombie flood. <laughs> you know, that ought to be a drink in New Orleans. I know they've got the zombie, but you could have the flaming zombie. <laughs> or the bloody zombie. Put a little tomato juice in it. They have a... I actually made a drink, not really a drink, it's like a shot called, uh, I think it's called like zombie brains or something, and it's it's gross, <laughs> it's like it's like vodka, or, no, I think it's like peach schnapps and like Bailey's and Whiskey oh Style and Dunedin, but, it's, but because of the difference in like densities of the different liquors, it's like, they kind of like flow into each other and they all kind of like separate and look really gross. So they look like zombie brains. <laughs> we'll have to have those at the next zombie party. <laughs> um, that fire scene, I wanted to say something about that. That was uh, when, when Salazar sets that room ablaze. That was really powerful in so many ways. That was almost kind of a primal sort of a thing when you think about the cleansing properties of fire, you know, and the not just the destructive but the cleansing properties of fire. And this is really, really, for me at least, it was really, really powerful. 
Well, and probably Daniel is seeking some of that purification. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through, because he doesn't see the walkers. He sees the people he killed. If you notice, mm. their eyes were all clear. Right. Uh, you know, it was different people from what we actually see when there was somebody that's, you know, at themselves. Because mm. I kept looking for Phileas to come walking out. But mm. heard of, oh, there aren't any... There aren't any walkers here. And, you know, as far as we know, Celia could have hidden out behind one of those tanks and survived as well. Mm. So, you know, she's not necessarily dead because we never saw her die or turn or anything. Mm. I don't know. Well, and his expression was was rather strange too to me it was almost like the expression of somebody going through a religion you know again going through some sort of religious experience or religious vision of, of a sort and i guess the question is if he did survive will this be enough to um bring him back because at one point in um the original series rick starts seeing his wife die uh, in childbirth uh, Lori, and you start seeing Lori standing out in the woods in a white dress, you know, kind of beckoning to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he loses it for, you know, a few episodes. He's just kind of walking around down there, you know, lost in himself. And finally, when they're attacked, he comes back to himself. So there is a way back in this universe for for Daniel. He can come back. Now, is he the is he the lead character in the the Walking Dead? Rick? Yeah, Rick is the leader of the other group. What he's saying. Uh, <laughs> and is he is he the one that when the series opens, he's been in a coma or something? How he comes to and the world is gone to hell in a handbasket while he was right. out. Is that the one? Right, he comes to in a hospital, mm-hmm. and um, you know he had not been infected by the walkers. He had been shot in a shootout, and so. Uh, you know, in the course of things, he would have woken up anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. as it happens, he wakes up after everybody has either turned or fled. Mm-hmm. Like his wife and friend, after the the hospital was overrun and Atlanta was torched, they just figured there was nothing to go back to. They assumed he was dead. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so it, he comes to, and this is some period of time after all those events have unfolded, in other words. Yeah, it's kind of impossibly long. It's been several months, and, you know, after your IV runs out, you kind of have to have fluids to live. But, yeah, um, <laughs> they need that of, glucose drip, you know. Right, you kind of, uh, you know, fudge that a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, he um, in the first few episodes, he looks almost like a walker himself because he's so That's- thin. That's almost Rip Van Winkle-esque, you know, where he comes to 20 years later and he's, you know, King George III is no longer on the throne and George Washington has been president, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, right. he's, he's I mean, awakened in a totally new world. It doesn't have to be 20 years. He could go to sleep for a year and wake up to President Trump. <laughs> right, yeah, that's kind <laughs> of the spooky. Apocalypse. Yeah, hair, hair Trump. Hair Trump. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> So, um, who have we not talked about? Did Alicia have anything going on this week? Or Ophelia? Alicia didn't really do much this episode. She she only, like, 
she talked to Travis like once and said and told him, you know, Chris was in our room with a knife when the gunshot went off, blah blah blah. Um I think probably my favorite uh my favorite Alicia moment, this episode moment is uh her showing that like he actually cares for Strand. Mm-hmm. Because she she's talking to Madison and she's like, you know, she's like, What are we supposed to do? Like, we can't just let him leave, you know, we've gotta we've gotta be with him, we've gotta like take care of him. And when he is leaving, like he's going out the gate, at least he's the only one there to kind of like see him off and he waves to him and he waves back. Which if you remember earlier in the episode when Strand is talking to Madison, when he's leading the hole, he's like, you know, we were just each other's uh ways to justify the means and uh, don't, but you know, don't make things confusing with the title of friend. The thing about it, though, I don't know if he buys his own bullshit because... Um, I don't think he does. <laughs> you know, he's lying to himself, so I don't really care because I've got to go, so it's kind of sour, right? And when he sees the place burning, the first thing he does is turn his truck around and come back for them. Right. You know, get in, you know, it's... Uh, it's Strand Ex Machina. <laughs> Here you go. Hop in. We're going to go. And uh, so, you know, he does feel, I think I think we've talked about this before, he, because of whatever trauma was associated with his growing up, he has trouble talking in terms of love and commitment. And instead, he talks about transactions like quid pro Yeah, everything is a transaction. But I don't think that's silly yet. I think he has feelings. Um, right. Well, think, or, or, yeah, m- yeah, maybe he's been suppressing all of them, frankly. Or telling him there's something else. Telling him, yeah, you know, when he can't suppress them, he tells him just that there's something else. So, well, I'll need them later to uh, continue my... Uh, no, I think he's just, you know, developed some personal loyalty. I kind of like him for that, even though he can't tell himself that he feel, you know, that he has that because he sees it as weakness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like the contemporary right wing party in this country that's not even truly a political party anymore. I mean, it's you know, it's like Noam Chomsky and others have pointed them out as being just an insurgency group. It's really what they are. But they're for them to show any sort of compromise is a sign of weakness. Um, to show any sort of compassion is a sign of weakness. We don't really know a whole lot about Strand's like past. We've only seen like these flashbacks with him and Thomas. Right. But I mean, maybe it's possible that I mean, Strand probably grew up in a world in an environment where like showing that kind of compassion probably you know turned out badly for him and got him in trouble. So he's probably kind of learned to be almost sociopathic in a way because that way you know if he doesn't feel things. It's easier. Yeah, or it least, could it could cost you your life in certain circumstances if you absolutely. Or at least look sociopathic. He tries so mm-hmm. hard to look like he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but then. But his 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 whole connection with Tomas was was itself revelatory because again he does have human feelings. And mm-hmm. to the point that he stayed behind to dig him a grave, um, mm-hmm. which is really hard work. If you've ever dug in a I haven't dug in the Baja, but I've dug holes in North Louisiana in the 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. You know, that ground is baked hard. There wasn't anybody really helping much. Um, so, you know, it required time and commitment and effort 
for him to do that, even against people saying, no, that's not what we want to do. And, well, I was his lover. I'm going to do this. And, you, well, that's pointing up something else that, uh, Bruce, that we've talked about on our other show. But in uh, in old traditional North Louisiana culture and, and the Latino culture would have some of this as well there in Mexico, the family would dig the grave for the dearly departed. So your siblings might dig that grave. It might be your parents. It might be cousins or whoever else, but it would be the family. Well, who is Tomas's family? Part of the family is Strand. Again, that's his, that's his companion. I mean, that's his, that is his romantic interest. I mean, so he's, he's in effect his family. And so he's digging that grave to commemorate the life of this man that he loved. And it's not unusual. You notice he was a kind of a solo grave there, but it's not unusual in this part of the country if you're driving out in the country to see a little family plot. Mm-hmm. They were they had a farm. They planted a grove of trees, and in the middle of it, put their um, put their family plot. That's where they bury their dead. The Autry House is like that out in the country. The, the oldest surviving structure in Lincoln Parish. I mean, right behind the old house out there, out from Dubach, is the family plot. Right behind the house. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's right, right there on the premises. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty common out here in these hills, and and so that then that that Latino culture, or that Mexican culture there in Baja, seems to be similar. Where I I would assume, I mean, your your family would dig the grave for you. Well, again, he's. Although he's, usually in normal times, they would have had it in consecrated ground, probably. Right. Back in the village, but we know right. they can't go back there for really good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So Strand buried him his way, which was his way of um, honoring the departure. I guess um, Daniel would have burned the body. I don't know what Daniel wanted. You know, I don't know that Daniel. Y'all remember when Daniel was in there arguing with him over what to do with the body? Mm-hmm. And I think that probably had more to do with what's going on in Daniel's own mind than with what Strand himself was doing. He wasn't making a lot of sense to me. What did y'all think of that scene? Yeah, it's clashing. Those clashing visions that, like you said, I mean, Daniel's own prior experience. And with this as an overlay to it, this again, this apocalypse, has to complicate matters. I mean, it's it's definitely going to affect your judgment about what you know how to handle a certain situation. Well, and I'm not sure he's even present exactly. You know that I think he's so haunted by his ghosts and his demons that he's not really dealing with what's going on now. Uh, you know, and it seems like Strand is just doing the next thing. Uh, you know, first I bury them, then I move on. You know. He doesn't. I was thinking he would try to fight with uh, Philly about who actually was going to take over, but he didn't even do that. You know, after after, after Thomas was gone, he was quite willing to leave. But Thomas was what held him here. Right, and I think that's going to prove to be interesting in future episodes with our core groups all split up into four types now. I mean, I'm sad to see them. Uh, Split up, but I'm also excited because them splitting up means that there are probably most definitely going to be new characters introduced. Because, I mean, we can't have, like, it'd be kind of boring to just have, like, 
scene where Nick is just walking alone by himself, maybe right. zombies or something. So um, that would be interesting. They'll have some country song playing over while he goes shuffling around among the they did that with the governor. You know, they spent about five minutes just showing he had been missing for several months, and they did a flashback to with montage of what he was doing, playing against uh, was it Oats in the Water? I can't remember what song it was, but uh, you know, it's, uh, usually some acoustic country song. Uh, but in, you know, in the Baja, it may be some Mexican song. Who yeah, knows? mariachi music or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that would fit. But. <laughs> or, or one of those narco ballads, you know, that they <laughs> would play to glorify the drug lords or whatever. But this, you know, the whole collapse of this compound brings us to something that in both series we've seen over and over, and that's no safe haven. Like the minute you get to a safe haven, something happens. I mean, at one point they actually got to the CDC, the CDC in Atlanta, and, you know, it's got these doors, and, you know, they've got the most modern medical equipment, and, okay, we're going to sit down here and cook us up a, a cure, except that everybody's dead but this one guy, and then the, the power that they're running on is running out, and once it runs out, the place automatically explodes. So they're there for two episodes, you know. <laughs> so that's about what happened here. You know, we've been coming to this place since we met Strand toward the end of the first season. Mm-hmm. And then we finally get there and we're only there for one week. <laughs> Well, and this here's a one of my favorite quotes of this of this uh, previous episode. We have the exchange between Madison and Celia, and you get uh, or I'm sorry, between uh, let's see, Madison has left Celia, and uh, Chris had killed the pirate, and this was the the line that was spoken. Celia was right about us. We destroy everything. Yeah. So it's sort of indicative, not just of them, but of really of, of culture. I mean, it's, it, this goes back to what we've talked about—the zombie apocalypse as a figure or a metaphor for this, you know, rampant and very rapacious consumer capitalism and corporatism. Well, and we are the monsters. We are the monsters exactly. that are killing our world off. Right. And right. We're complicit in our own destruction. Yeah, yeah. We're bringing it about ourselves, and so. Uh, you know, they've got this place that's made it all this time, however many weeks in the, uh, the outbreak, they've made it, they're functioning. And within a couple of days of them being there, it's all gone. You know, they've burned it. The people leading it, the woman leading it is gone. And that's just it, you know. And they become nomads again. The, our core group of characters once again become nomads in the land. Right. Only they're not even together anymore. So the most of the rest of the season will probably be taken up with you know, individually pursuing those, their those own, characters, I guess. Yeah, their own paths until they finally mm-hmm. maybe come back together if they survive. <laughs> or until they're destroyed. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could well lose a few. I know it would be surprised if we do. Well, it would be effective at a certain point if, frankly, you know, we're talking cold-bloodedly here, but if they kill off one of those characters after they've built them up over a long period of time, not just a couple of episodes, but over, say, a season, you know, right. or even over, say, seven or eight episodes. Um, 
that would be fairer again than just bringing somebody in and killing them off after a couple of episodes. I mean, to me, that's just really a cheap shot, and it's really, really a cheat to to the viewers who have been sitting there and investing all that time and effort and getting to know those characters, and they suddenly decide the writers decide well, we're we're going to kill this character. Yeah, like Celia was a very strong character, and we could have had her around for quite a bit longer. And like I said, she may be. We don't know that she's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, she may have, you know, they've got those big metal tanks. She could have gotten up on top of one of them mm-hmm. and slipped out when Daniel came in. Um, and, you know, that'll be playing over the mariachi music, too. <laughs> it's like if they decide they want to save her. Uh, you know, you can always bring somebody back. If, if you don't actually see them dead and with, a, you know, some kind of spike in their brain, they're always... Well, what, speaking about that, I mean, what do you all think about the passengers that survived the, the plane crash? I mean, do you think that they're going to somehow try to bring those characters back into the story? or? Well, Alex is <clears throat> the only one we know that survived to this point because, mm-hmm. you know, the kid she had died, and that's why she wanted revenge, so... And Alex is still out there, you know. Um, and I think she's still kind of pissed off. So I'm not sure we've seen the last of her. I would like to see them. Uh, I would like to see her again. I would too. You know, again, you've invested a lot of time in this character. If you, I don't know, there were like 16 mini episodes, and it's only a few minutes long, all strung together, but people are watching that every week. And um, so leaving her on that ship, well, they're set up so they could survive a while. There's no way that the the walkers could get them from the outside. Another group could. But, um, you know, she might take over this group now that, uh, you know, they've killed the leader and his brothers. (laughs) <laughs> They've got uh, a truck now, and it'd be interesting to see if they try to go and take that pickup and get, get back across the border into the U.S. Yeah, because the boat may or may not be there. Um, mm. Although they invested a lot in that set, so it's going to be tempting to get back on that boat. <laughs> yeah, traveling in style beats traveling in a pickup. Well, and also, you know, just if you've seen... They built this endless pool kind of thing right next to the ocean and this fake yacht and they've invested a lot in that that um that set. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, just for efficiency's sake they go back to it. Well, it's kind of their home right now, right? I mean that's that's what it amounts to. So the whole, all the characters are trying to get home. I mean literally, and figuratively speaking. Right. Yeah, maybe they'll wait around there and everybody will converge back at the boat. They could do it at the end of the first episode. Y'all have any speculation? Wait, what's that? Do y'all have any speculation about what's coming? Hmm. Like uh Nick and Ophelia together at last. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to get back with the group before that can happen. I think that it's definitely something that the writers will probably explore, though, because so many of the fans really want them to get together. <laughs> well, and we've got to start repopulating the Earth. <laughs> True. Although they were doing a pretty good job of it on that boat. Every woman on that boat was pregnant, except for Alex. Um Let's see something in the water. 
I wonder if anybody here on the West Coast, since we've looked at the East, the Eastern U.S. at least, I wonder if anybody on the West Coast will try to go and, and do a, a a milk run, so to speak, for government. If they'll go try, to, they, as far as I know, the government has gone down. But I mean, I wonder if there are any pockets of government somewhere that they're not aware of. And know? that's what you wound up at Alexandria. You had this congresswoman who was. You know, her skills were, frankly, political. And, um, you know, politics has a terrible reputation in our country, but when Aristotle wrote his book, Politics, he said it's the highest art because it's how people get along together in civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we're going to survive in any kind of society, you've got to have zombie apocalypse politicians. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. It'll be micro. It'll be a little, you know, compound or something that they've been able to survive in. But then they can eventually start linking up with other ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it wouldn't even be a city state at this stage of the game. It would be at most like a village or a community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is. She had more of the authority of a village elder. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they didn't have a legal system per se, and. Uh, until this season, they didn't have a jail. There was one guy, he didn't want to have to keep killing everybody that they didn't like, so he was building a cell to hold people in so he could try to rehabilitate them. But um, Like a calaboose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, old Spanish like colonial j- the old Spanish colonial jails. I don't know where where do you think it's going, Quinn? What's the what, what's the what's the story from from your perspective? Uh, <laughs> it's it's so hard to make speculation because like it could just go anywhere. I feel like and I have no idea, but I hope that uh, I I want everybody to meet us again at some point. But um, I think at this point, I'm probably the most interested in um, how Travis and Chris are going to fare by themselves. Right, because Travis can't even take Chris in in with another group at this point. Right. He's going to have to, like, I mean, I don't know what their their plan is. Is it to, like, rehabilitate Chris and make him not be some sort of, like, homicidal person, but it's it's going to be hard to do that if he's the only one around him. Like, if you're the people that see each other, he's not going to be able to, like, grow as a person. So I'm worried well, about And um, how's he going to sleep at night? Is he going to tie Chris up every night and hope yeah. we go lose some killing? Or, you know, it's going to be hard for Travis just pragmatically um He's going to need that jail cell. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, I want to ask y'all. What it, yeah. yeah, I was just wondering about the um, the writers. We know that this guy that that created the the graphic novel from which the the whole franchise has has grown. Uh, that Robert Kirkman. What do y'all know about him and the other writers that are that are penning these these scripts because they're pretty good scripts and I'd like to see some of the other work of these writers themselves you know where where else have they worked I'm, I'm kind of interested in that I mean, do y'all know anything about them or I don't know anything I, I know Kirkman was originally living I think in Tennessee when he wrote 
the original graphic novels. Mm-hmm. This time, uh, he's kind of done the Beverly Hillbillies thing and moved to uh, Los <laughs> Angeles. So. Swimming pools, movie stars. <laughs> That's it. So uh, he started out, you know, with the cement pond this time. <laughs> That's funny. Only zombies in the cement pond. Uh, but, yeah, you know, he writes what he knows. So yeah, I know Hollywood now. Let's sit in, in and around there. Uh, yeah. So maybe they'll drift back to Los Angeles since that's what he knows. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I still don't see this as just for practical reasons becoming a walk through the countryside series because we have that already. So they mm-hmm. probably you know keep it more urban. Um, and it was interesting to put them out on the ocean, but I'm not sure how much more of that will be fresh. You know. How many times can you fight off pirates before it starts to get old? Mm-hmm. Unless if they run up on some, there are bound to be some some liners and some cargo ships out on the ocean that are they're literally just stalled there because the, I guess presumably some of the occupants of the things would have come down with the zombie ailment, you know, would have, you know, eaten their fellow passengers or whatever. So you might run up on a shipload of zombies someplace. Ooh, zombie cruise ship. <laughs> the zombie. <laughs> Instead of the princess line, the zombie line, maybe. Yeah. It might be kind of kind of a funny episode, actually. <laughs> Got a really dark sense of humor, yes. Well, do y'all have any closing thoughts? I see you've been going for about an hour. Hmm. Well, is is this the last episode for a while? Yeah, I'm thinking they'll play the next several episodes before the fall walking dead. Um, oh, to get everybody back up to speed, I suppose. Yeah, you know, they like to kind of link them together. That's what they did last year. They played these episodes, the first episodes, and then they played the fall uh, walking dead. And then in the spring, they reversed it. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking we'll see them in August, maybe. So stay tuned, folks, because when they come back, so will we. That's right. <laughs> well, for Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Quinn Warner. And I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank all of you for tuning into this week's episode of Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. We hope that you'll join us for part two of season two of Fear the Walking Dead, and we hope you'll join us for this podcast. Bye for now. Bye.